today on Ag News Daily. Number one is going to be money. I think everybody understands how much has been spent uh, through the market um, facilitation program payments and also the COVID payments for agriculture, monies they didn't ask for. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and happy Thursday. We are almost to the weekend. It's Ashton Carr joined by Delaney Howell. And Delaney, I've got to say, this week has been pretty long. I guess just coming back after a holiday, it's always hard to get back into the swing of things. But uh, I tell you what, I'm really glad that it's the weekend. Almost the weekend. Almost the weekend. Yes, me as well, Ashton. We may or may not have a podcast tomorrow, so if we don't post one, don't be alarmed, anyone. Um As I mentioned before, I'm getting LASIK surgery done later today. We're actually recording the podcast a little bit early before markets have closed today so I can get to my appointment. Um, I've heard mixed reviews from people that have reached out. Some people have said it went off without a hitch and others have said that they were out of commission for maybe a couple of days. But just uh, if if we don't have a podcast tomorrow, it's not there's no there shouldn't be any surprise. I should say. How about that? Yeah, Delaney, I'm hoping everything goes well for you. And hopefully one day I can get LASIK too. I've told you quite a few times now that I'm jealous. I have such bad vision. I'm like negative five on like the 2020 scale. Oh, I'm like negative two and a half. So I'm definitely not. This truly shouldn't be too bad of a surgery because I don't have terrible, terrible vision. I can still see somewhat without glasses on or contacts in. But yeah, so that's what's going on for me on a personal note. But Ashton, we've got to talk some ag news today before I hop off for my surgery. Um, And as I mentioned, we're recording this here about noon on Thursday afternoon. So markets haven't quite closed yet. So we won't necessarily talk about where markets closed for the day, but we definitely, as of right now, are seeing things have a pretty good reversal on the day. Specifically, I'm talking soybeans here. Uh, when you talk about why, I think there's a couple factors determining today's market moves. We're continuing to see the dollar slide to its lowest level. We've seen it now touch the lowest level in about two and a half years. We've also seen strength in the yuan, the Chinese currency. So that's also helping drive demand as far as exports are concerned. Our product is much cheaper than buying it elsewhere or even uh, using domestic supplies when it comes to Chinese product. But we're also continuing to watch the developing weather patterns going on right now in South America. The As I reported yesterday, they are getting some timely rains in some of their very key areas in Brazil and Argentina. However, the caveat here is from what I'm reading, soil moisture and conditions are still not improving enough to make it really worth it. It sounds like there's still pretty soil, their soil down there is still pretty moisture deficit and they are going to continue to need further rainfall here running up until Christmas to prevent any sort of long-term La Nina weather pattern. So it sounds like although they're getting rains, it's not necessarily going to be enough right now. Well, Delaney, I just want to talk domestically here for a second. Specifically, I want to talk about Smithfield Foods. And this is some good press that we're seeing come from Smithfield because they have offered to help health officials distribute COVID-19 vaccines and store them in ultra-cold freezers that are in high demand to support a vaccine campaign. And I thought this was very interesting because I didn't know that, you know, vaccines, I don't know if it's just a COVID-19 vaccine or if other vaccines are supposed to be stored in really cold areas, but I thought it was super interesting that they were 
you know, open to helping store and distribute those vaccines and certainly some good press, good news coming from Smithfield. Well, I've got some protein industry press as well. I guess you could call this good or bad. I don't know. I don't necessarily have an opinion on it. But uh, following up on that price fixing allegations that we've reported here on the podcast, we've now seen allegations happen in the beef industry, the pork industry, the fish industry, and I believe the poultry industry all as well. But JBS made some moves today. JBS South America, more specifically, I should say, is going to pay $24.5 million, and they've agreed to cooperate against other large pork processors like Tyson Foods Inc. and Hormel Foods to settle part of this proposed class action lawsuit alleging industry-wide price-fixing scheme. So it sounds like here uh, JPS is a little bit willing to throw other meat processing folks under the bus if you want to look at it that way. But essentially it sounds like they are going to be um an informant, I guess, if you want to call it that, or they are willing to at least discuss what's been going on. We might see some pretty big answers here to see, hey, yes, indeed, these companies were working together to fix prices. So I don't know how much of that is going to become public knowledge. I'm sure most, if not all of it. So this is going to be potentially a pretty big breaking story here moving forward, Ash, that we definitely want to keep an eye on. I'm kind of excited for that, Delaney. I've got to say, I feel like a lot of what the news has been lately is kind of about the same stuff. So I'm excited to hopefully get some answers here soon. But I want to go back to talking about the bird flu. Like I said, we have been talking about, you know, the same things I feel like, but it's definitely very important that we keep an eye out on that H5N8 strain that's kind of going through those foreign countries. But about 29,000 chickens will be slaughtered in Germany after the bird flu was found on another poultry farm. The H5N8 bird flu was confirmed in a farm in the eastern area of the country. And the 29,000 chickens are now being slaughtered and a 10-kilometer observation area is being set up covering 482 farms with about 644,000 poultry on those farms. And just to kind of remind you, the disease has been found in countries including France, the Netherlands, Germany, Britain, Belgium, Denmark, Ireland, Sweden, and Poland after severely hitting Russia, Kazakhstan, and Israel. And some 11 other farms in Germany have suffered outbreaks. So I think that it's going to be more of a a big deal than we've been reporting on. Of course, it's kind of been the same countries little by little. I say little by little, it's been, you know, large numbers of, you know, birds that are getting cold, but it's uh, a little bit more invasive, I suppose, than I originally thought. It certainly is. Uh, You're right. This has been an ongoing developing story. It's definitely nothing compared to African swine fever, but still something that could cause issues for the industry. Certainly, Delady, but I just have one more story here concerning China. They have published a new draft law on management of its grain reserves earlier today to include oversight of stocks in regions and provinces at its seeks to bolster its food security. Previous rules governing grain reserves only applied to its central state stockpiles, but Beijing has heightened its focus on risks to food supply this year. 
And the law was drawn up as, quote, new situations and questions have risen regarding grain reserves, Security Administration, posing severe challenges to China's grains stockpile security. And that comes from the National Development and Reform Commission. China said earlier this year in May that it would draft and carry out both near and long term plans on ensuring food security amid the COVID-19 pandemic. And this new law stipulates how the reserve volume should be set and the products to be included, as well as when the grains can be released. Reserves should only be used in cases of obvious grain shortage, significant price moves, major natural disasters, or other emergencies. And the document also encourages urban and rural residents to stockpile grains in a reasonable way. Interesting. Okay. So we'll have to continue to watch that story as well, it sounds like there, Ashton. We certainly will. And it didn't... Well, I guess it kind of came, you know, out of of the surprise for me just because, you know, it has been kind of obvious that China has really tried to do more for food security in terms of, you know, testing for COVID-19 on specifically, you know, protein that's coming in from other countries. But I was more surprised just because it was grain reserves. And I really haven't seen too many news stories about the grain reserves, really just, you know, those those testing of protein Mm-hmm. Uh, packages, I guess, that have that have come into China. No, but this is a uh, definitely an important story to keep an eye on because that determines, of course, you know what they've got in reserves determines what they're going to buy on the U.S. market. But I've got one other piece of Chinese news here, Ashton, as well. Flipping the tables here, we've seen the Trump administration step up the trade war against China by banning the import of any cotton or cotton products from a major producer, Xinjiang Production and Construction Corps. This is a company that is apparently a very large cotton exporter, specifically to the United States. And we saw on Wednesday, U.S. Customs and Border Protection announced a ban against the company, stating that this corporation is using forced labor of Uyghur Muslims, which is, I believe, on the western part of China, the portion that borders Russia. There's a large sect of Uyghur Muslims in that area. And U.S. Customs and Border Protection are claiming that the Chinese foreign ministry is uh, basically having some humanitarian issues, human rights issues taking place at these specific um cotton production facilities related to Xinjiang Production and Construction Corp. So this escalates things a little bit further here. And China's foreign ministry on Thursday said that the ban was on, quote, disinformation and violates international trade rules. So this is definitely, I think, ticked off people on both sides of the issue. So again, here's another ongoing um, story that could be developing a little bit further. Maybe we see things die down heading into January with the transition of the presidency still yet to be determined. Well, Delaney, like I said, I am all out of news for today. And I would say, how about we hop into the markets? But again, we're not going to really talk a whole lot about markets since we are recording earlier in the day. But how about we get into today's conversation? Let's do it, Ashton. But I'd like to look at several different areas of agricultural policy um, that are sticky as hell that are going to pop up 
no matter a change of administration or not. But they probably are going to even be stickier because of the potential um, for a big change in administration coming January 20th. So, Jay, let me begin by focusing on agricultural policy in a Biden administration. Uh, and you can take it from your livestock side, perhaps more, but definitely from your background. Um, ag policy in the U.S. has traditionally been split by geography rather than political party. We all have known that from watching it. Do you see that changes in the upcoming Congress, especially with the retirement of Pat Roberts from the Senate, Mike Conway from the House, and the defeat of Colin Peterson in the House, is going to make a change in how agricultural policy is made? Absolutely. Um, and I think the, 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 the later point that you made regarding uh, the leadership uh, voids that have been created by the departure of some really key people um, end up being the, maybe the dominating factor in how the next farm bill comes together. This is nothing against um, who we all anticipate will be the new leaders that move into the, the House Ag Committee, and you can kind of uh, start guessing at how it works out uh, uh, on the Senate side as well. Uh, we'll have to wait for final numbers right uh, out of Georgia to know what that is. But you, you can't just remove a Pat Roberts and a Colin Peterson who bring 45 years of, of historical perspective and know all the mistakes that we've made in addition to the things that we did that kind of worked right or that we could afford or that seemed to give us the biggest bang for our buck. You can't remove them from the process and just think it's going to it's going to be the same. Um, the rest of the people that sat in those rooms don't have that same level of expertise and experience. Um, sure, we're still going to have Southern versus Midwest and some Northern and specialty crop versus everybody else. The livestock folks will pretend like they don't care what's in Title I and Title II. Um, but the truth is, it'll matter immensely what the conservation program looks like. A President Biden promised that he was going to take a look at maybe doing more set-asides and taking some acres out of production. That'll send a, a, a fear into the livestock sector because they like oversupplies of all of those things to keep prices uh, uh, in a moderate level. How it actually plays out, I think kind of as in the past, somebody will rise to the occasion and we'll see somebody take those reins in both, both the House and the Senate and they'll write the bill. I don't know that administrations in the end get to do more than just accept what comes to them for the most part. Maybe on money it's different, but on the actual policy, um, maybe maybe it won't be as different as we think. But there is no way that you can deny that the voids created by uh, Colin Peterson and Pat Roberts not being in the room, Mr. Conway as well, and and a handful of other members, um, that there won't be a real that that that'll be a game changer for some people. Mike, let me ask you the same thing. Plus. How strong is the influence on the Agriculture Committee going to be by these members from urban districts, um, the Marsha Fudge and others um, who are working on committees and are only really there because of the food and nutrition title? So combining all of that, what do you think 
moving into the new session? Well, I would offer that I, I agree with everything that Jay said. I think as we move into this session, agriculture is going to face a couple of, of uh, headwinds. Number one is going to be money. I think everybody understands how much has been spent uh, through the market um, facilitation program payments and also the COVID payments for agriculture. Monies they didn't ask for, but monies that happened as a result of um, several policies and, and actions and activities in the last four years. And then with what's happened with COVID as a whole and ag spending always comes under scrutiny. And I think it, it will again. So that's going to be um, obstacle one. And obstacle two, Ken, to your point, is going to be this balance of social economic policy. Um, obviously, ag committees are normally focused on commodity programs and hunger programs. But a number of members of Congress have joined the committee from urban areas because of hunger and feeding programs specifically. And so there is going to be a little bit of a conflict. And the bigger challenge goes to what Jay just said in terms of the um, caucuses. The Democratic caucus had Colin Peterson, who abdicated strongly. He's gone. But he was able to convince a lot of urban members to come along. And uh, that's gone. So really, for all of us in agriculture, who's going to be the person that steps up to the plate in that regard? Uh, going over to the Senate side, you know, I don't see as much of a change uh, with um, a lot of those folks, obviously a little bit more steady and seasoned and have been around for a while. And they all have a little bit higher priority for agriculture in rural America because all of their states have it. So the, the challenge is going to be there. And uh, that's we'll see what happens. Mike, going with these urban district people that were in the ranks of the ag committees, potentially moving to leadership of these committees since in the House, they're Democrats. We know the House is going to be Democrat-controlled. The Senate may be almost equal, so that'll be interesting. But do you think they and the Biden administration will bring some interesting agricultural policy to the top of the agenda? Yeah, I do. I mean, if you if you look at kind of the um, the constituency for the, the Democratic Party, um, normally they come at these issues. And we saw this during the Obama administration, and I believe we'll see it during the Biden administration. They come at these issues uh, more nutrition focused. And I want to offer up the difference between hunger and nutrition, because it's very, very important to note hunger programs about feeding programs. Nutrition programs or nutrition conversations and policy tend to be about the quality and the types of food that we that we eat. The nutrition community tends to be a little bit more critical of production agriculture. So we are certainly going to be um, experiencing that um, as we move forward. Um, I think we're all anxious to see who the secretary of ag is going to be, because I think that will send a, a clear signal um, on the priority of the department. If they go with an urban member, I think that says something, whereas if they go with a traditional member, uh, that says something different. So that's my view. Ken, I would just I would just add to the comment that Mike just made, because I think it is it is a superb um, uh, view of how that that relationship sometimes takes place between the two entities. Um, what we've seen from the nutrition community in the past is, and again, I've worked with a lot of those folks, have great appreciation for their skill set, et cetera. But we tend to have a nutrition conversation in the United States about what we should eliminate from our diet, not from how we should just make adjustments and changes. And so it seems to only be extremes. Well, 
you know, one time potatoes are on the, the mark. Another time, basically proteins uh, were off the table um, uh, outside of beans and, and some other proteins. And, and I do think that that stirs that conversation. It stirs that pot pretty aggressively before it ever even really begins. And, uh, and, and so, again, Mike's comments, I think, um, uh, ring true for sure, I think, to a lot of people in the livestock community. To keep you with us, folks, coming up at the end of this session, I'm going to ask both of these gentlemen who they think the next Secretary of Agriculture will be. Let's go to exports and trades, and Jay, let's stay with you. Will the U.S. change its trade policy with China under a Biden administration? Sure. I think we will. Uh, I don't think in a way that really harms agriculture, but I do think that there'll be uh, a good number of uh, uh, changes. What's still left in that, in that, uh, that whole package that's currently um, underway with China today, though, is remember that we're only operating under phase one of that agreement now. Uh, in phase two, three, and beyond, uh, and and in some respects, the same is true really for some other countries that really matter to, especially to the beef, pork, and poultry sector. Um, I think uh, uh, you know I think we've we've done the 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 really hard work and we've we've really opened up those markets in a big way to really gain the the high value uh, uh, numbers for the beef guys. Um, that's going to take a little bit more work. Um, China has been buying enough pork. Um, I mean, you know, there's really no words to describe what's been going on with the pork trade um, there. It's been phenomenal. And I don't think there's much a Biden administration would do to try to harm that. I do think in other sectors, there'll be a lot of changes with the way um, the administration and the United States interacts with China. Um, but I think from an agriculture perspective, most of the hard work's been done. And good for them, you know. I'm glad we got it behind us. Mike, what about you on yeah. China with a, an administration that could be very different in how it approaches it? You know, I don't I don't know that there'll be much of a change in policy, but maybe more of a change in tactics. Um, the, the the Trump administration, their tactics was um, combative and tariffs, and I would remind I remind listeners that when um, President-elect Trump talked about how he was going to go after China, there was a lot of pushback, both on the Republican and Democratic side, saying that we were, you know, poking a bear that didn't need poke because we had a good relationship there for America's farmers. Well, now both Republicans and Democrats in the world is talking about how China is a problem on so many levels. So I don't think that the Biden administration from a tactics standpoint will back off. I think they'll push, but I think they're going to be more collaborative with our international partners on how they approach that. And I think clearly they're going to take a fresh look at what's been done, knowing knowing that American agriculture needs that market. So I, I expect a, a bit of a change in tactics, but again, not not as much on policy. Mike, staying with you. What about work toward trade treaties with Asian and European countries? You know, we had a lot in the works in the Obama administration, which Hillary Clinton and uh, Donald Trump both said that they were not going to continue with. We even trashed NAFTA and started all over with it. What do you think will happen on trade treaties? You know, I think the first thing to watch for is whether the Biden administration decides to change course and go back to the multilateral approach. 
compared to the Trump administration that was a little bit more bilateral in their conversations. And I, I don't know the answer to that. But that's all going to be against the backdrop of agriculture versus um, industry, um, uh, the American um, economic machine that also needs those trade agreements. Um, um, obviously, ag is going to have to be a significant part of that. I don't know if, for example, on TPP, which the Obama administration had negotiated, the Trump administration put that to the side. But I would assume um, the Biden administration will, will revisit that. I do believe both administrations are going to continue to pursue um, opportunities in, in Africa and India, although those are going to have a, a longer term um, timeline, um, but with good benefit towards the end if we ever get there. Jay, from a livestock perspective, do you look for any trade treaties that might go through that benefit us, such as what was in the works before the end of the Obama administration? Um, you know, um, I guess I'm more pessimistic about um, how that actually plays out. Um, and, I, and I think some of the actions by China over the last couple of years have uh, spooked some of the, the old TPP partners about re, reigniting some of that conversation. Um, I do think there's there's a couple of agreements that, well, there's a couple of things that have to be done uh, over the next couple of years, maybe not in the, in the you know first 100 days or so. Um, but the United States and the United Kingdom have to have a trade agreement renegotiated now. It's not something that either party can really dock. Um, and uh, we do an enormous amount of business between the two countries. We don't need that to all just be willy-nilly, you know, um, uh, uh, dodge, trying to trying to punish each other back and forth. And it's in both players' interests to actually get that resolved. Um, so that's going to happen. I agree with uh, with uh, Mike's comments for sure that India, I think, is really high on the list. Africa should be high. Um, we should be looking at an EU uh, package, which I think was was kind of in the works for the Trump administration. Uh, it, had they been had had they remained in power, and so yeah, I'm, I'm, uh, again, I I think we'll still go after it. Um, I personally, um, while at one point I was a massive supporter of these. Uh, uh, multilateral uh, agreements, and I understand how they, they can bring some progress. Um, I do think the United States is going to have to, if Biden wants to be successful, he will have to take on some of these one at a time. And the UK is one of them that you'll just have to do one on one. A question for both of you, beginning with Mike. Is there a likelihood the administration will attach human rights to relationships uh, with any of our trade partners in this coming four-year period? Well, I think if you look at USMCA, obviously it was renegotiated with the House of Representatives based on um, uh, the rights of laborers in Mexico. I don't see that changing, especially in a Democratic administration and a House controlled by Democrats. So I believe that social policy is still going to be attached to any trade agreements going forward. No, I absolutely agree that um, maybe even more so in the future, especially with uh, uh, if we begin negotiations with uh, the African Congress and, and those kinds of entities, I can only imagine that it's going to be a huge part of that um, that negotiation. And you have to assume as well 
that anything between the United States and India is at least going to attempt to address it one way or another. Uh, there's a lot of people from India that come to the United States, uh, a lot more than we, we tend to normally discuss. Uh, there's a lot of people trade uh, between the two, and I think that's going to weigh in. I agree with Mike. Welcome to the Hot Rod Farmer Minute. I am Ray Bohax from the Idle Chatter podcast heard on the Global Ag Network. Living on an unimproved road or driving in a field may reveal an annoying and quite loud rattle in a car or truck. It can even sound as if the bumper is falling off. Before thinking the worst, perform this simple test. Identify the surface that evokes the rattle and then drive over it with the brake pedal very lightly applied. If the rattle is eliminated or substantially diminished, the problem is with the brake pads in the front calipers. Most, if not all, disc brake systems employ an anti-rattle clip, which is traditionally made from a spring steel. If the clip is worn, not installed firmly or missing, the brake pads will rattle loudly. By lightly applying the brakes, the pad is touching the rotor and its movement limited. Agriculture runs on machinery, profits on reliability. Please visit FarmMachineryDigest.com for more helpful hints and technical articles where steel and soil meet. Well, we will go ahead and continue this audio file tomorrow, but certainly something interesting to keep in mind as we are, you know, of course, post-election and don't really have any clear answers as of yet, but definitely something that we will continue to talk about here on the podcast. Absolutely. There's a lot of things we're going to be have to, having to continue to watch. There's actually a lot of breaking news here kind of for the end of the year. So, Ashley, we've got a lot of eye on the ground, but PI work. I don't know what the word is I'm looking for. We've got a lot of watching to do, I should say. Well, I'm certainly excited about that. Delaney, always love talking about those breaking stories, kind of like you shared yesterday on the podcast. And folks, if you uh, want to hear what I'm talking about, you can go ahead and listen to yesterday's podcast on the website at agnewsdaily.com. With that, Delaney, should we let the people go? Let's let them go.